Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. In this segment, I'm with Keaton Ross, who covers criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch. He recently wrote about a federal judge's ruling that will allow Oklahoma to carry out dozens of executions. Keaton, will you give us a a brief summary of the judge's ruling and its immediate effect? Sure. So last Monday, uh, Judge Stephen Friot of uh, the U.S. District Court of Western Oklahoma ruled that Oklahoma's execution protocol using midazolam as sedative as the first drug. It does not cause an unconstitutional level of pain and suffering, as the attorneys argued. Essentially, they argued that that first drug would not render someone unconscious and would leave uh, a person subject subject to pain. So that essentially allows the state to, to continue seeking out executions. What, uh, what stood out to you in this ruling? Um, you know, of course, it was a pretty, pretty long ruling, several dozen pages. But the one thing that stood out to me was how favorably he, he took uh, Irvin Yin's testimony. Um, Irvin Yin is an Oklahoma City anesthesiologist, a former state senator, and most recently he was a paid state witness at four executions that the state has carried out over the past seven to eight months. And and his argument was that midazolam will work in. 30 seconds to a minute to knock a person out. They won't feel anything. And he also, in that, uh, the John Grant execution where he vomited and convulsed, uh, he essentially uh, took that as, you know, just ate too much food before the execution, and it was a result of that. And uh, there wasn't anything cruel and unusual uh, with that execution. Can the plaintiffs appeal this decision? They can appeal. The attorneys uh, that are representing the prisoners haven't said definitively if they will uh, appeal. Of course, if you look at the current climate of the federal courts and the Supreme Court uh, recently issuing rulings that rulings that aren't favorable to prisoners or people on death row, um, the odds of a reversal on this don't uh, don't appeal appear likely. Now, uh, especially with the question about the. Um uh, availability of some of the drugs used for lethal injections, uh, which you know may vary from state to state in the federal government. Uh, some states have given prisoners the option to choose their own method of execution. Does Oklahoma allow that? No, Oklahoma has just one approved protocol for lethal injection. Uh, so a prisoner can't request firing squad, for example, or uh, electric chair, that sort of thing. There's only that one approved method. And thus far, the, the Department of Corrections has said it has the supply necessary to, to carry out these executions. Well, uh, you mentioned that they'll, they're planning to carry out more. Do they have any scheduled? So late last week, the, the Attorney General's office requested 25 execution dates from the State Court of Criminal Appeals. Uh, it should be about a couple weeks before we have anything definitive on those dates, but they have been requested. How often will the state uh, be carrying out executions? Uh, This is certainly subject to change based on uh, 
the appeals court ruling, but the attorney general has requested dates approximately once every four weeks starting in late August. So we're looking at about if, of course, an execution isn't stayed or, you know, clemency granted about an execution every month for a couple of years. What concerns have the anti-death penalty advocates expressed? Of course, there there are still the same concerns about the drug itself and its effectiveness and um, its its potential for leaving someone vulnerable to pain. Uh, something else I've heard uh, from advocates and um, attorneys representing the prisoners is just the pace at which you're going. If you're having an execution every month, uh, it might open, you know, the doors to to carelessness or mistakes or just you're doing so many in a short amount of time, like the odds of something wrong, you know, going wrong may increase. Now, among those uh, on the uh, list for uh, to have a date scheduled is uh, Richard Glossop. Um, he could be executed by the end of the year. Could you talk a little about the significance of that particular case? Yeah, so Richard Glossop was convicted of murder in 1997. He didn't commit the murder himself, but it was alleged in the trial that he uh, essentially was the mastermind of this murder and uh, commissioned one of his co-workers to carry out carry it out for him. The co-worker got life in prison. He got the death penalty. Um, and it's since been, uh, he claims that uh, the co-worker set him up and it was false testimony and there's not a lot of corroborating evidence uh aside from the the co-workers testimony so glossop has several advocates in the state legislature i think there were there were about 3 dozen last summer that sent a letter requesting an independent investigation into his case um so certainly that that will be something to watch as far as when his date is set and how you know folks in the state legislature the governor uh respond all right. Well, thanks, Keaton. You can read uh, Keaton's coverage of uh, Judge Freyett's decision and all his other work on criminal justice in Oklahoma at our website, oklahomawatch.org. In this segment of Long Story Short, I'm with Jennifer Palmer, who covers education for Oklahoma Watch. She's been writing about Epic Charter Schools since 2016. She and Oklahoma Watch recently dismissed a lawsuit filed against the online charter school. That lawsuit was seeking emails under the Oklahoma Open Records Act. Jennifer, why did the court dismiss the lawsuit? We dismissed the lawsuit because we got the emails. And uh, what records uh, were involved in that lawsuit? What, what did you ask for? Originally, what I asked for in July of 2020 was about a year and a half worth of emails by uh, to and from Ben Harris. He is a co-founder of Epic Charter Schools and was really heavily involved in the day-to-day operation and management of the school, also co-owner of the management company at the time that was um, hired by the school. Okay, so you you asked for a, a, a window, a time period of emails that you wanted to see, and what was Epic's response to your request? Their response was they wanted to charge us about $40,000 for those emails. And... Ultimately, then, you you amended your request, right? 
Right. We tried to work with them and we narrowed the time frame to about two months. And their response to that was $4,000 bill. And then Oklahoma responded to that by filing a lawsuit, right? What was the, the logic behind taking that to court? Right. I tried to work with them um, and they would not budge on charging us some fees for that request. They wanted to charge uh, fees for a legal review to have attorneys comb through all of these emails and look for student you know, private information, protected information. And they also wanted to charge for copying, even though we, you know, asked for electronic copies, not paper copies. Um, after, you know, trying to work with them, we decided to file a lawsuit. We, you know, firmly believe that it was, um, it was, you know, unreasonable to charge those fees. All right, well, the um, Oklahoma o- Open uh, Records Act, which uh, is the prevailing law in this particular case, spells out that for non-commercial purposes, there are a few fees a public entity can charge uh, for a request, but um, uh, most fees uh, that they would like to charge, they can't, right? You can charge 25 cents a page if if somebody wants actual paper copies. But most of the other things that, that were first proposed in that invoice, um, we felt were prohibited uh, by the act. They, they felt otherwise. Um, but ultimately, when their law firm took a look at it, they, they agreed to settle and, and provide all those emails at no cost. Um, is, is that typical when you make an open records request? Is that something you run into a lot that, that the, uh, the public entity you're asking for the records wants to charge big fees or have big delays in producing those records? I wouldn't say it's typical, but it does happen frequently. It is something that, um, you know, it's very helpful if you read the law, know the law, and know what you what they are and aren't allowed to do so that you can push back against those that feel, you know, that they're trying to charge something that's unreasonable or, or not within the law. Have, in your experience, or, or most of those cases when somebody comes back and says, yes, we'll provide those, but but we're going to charge you $40,000 or, or yes, we'll provide those. We'll have them for you in five or six years. Um, Are those um, in your experience, usually an entity intentionally putting up barriers to try to keep you from getting the records or deter you from getting the records? Or do you run into, uh, you know, clerical employees who just don't know what they're required to provide the public? I'd say typically they just don't know. But in this case, we certainly felt like it was a deterrent that they wanted to put up a significant roadblock for us in in obtaining those records so that we would, you know, go away and not pursue it. It, it, Was there any question that these emails are a public record? No. I I mean, they're a public school. Uh, They're funded with taxpayer dollars. Their business is public. Um. So Epic, uh, by settling the lawsuit, part of that settlement was their agreement to produce the emails that you requested and the the time frame that you had asked. What did they end up giving you? Originally, they said it was going to be a little over 6,000 emails. What we received ultimately was more like 14,000. 
um, mostly emails, but also a few um, voicemails and some other, you know, correspondence. And what are you looking for in those? The time frame that we asked for is right before the um, state auditor's report came out in October of 2020. We were hoping to get kind of a window into how the school and the, the management company was preparing to respond to that public audit. But also, just through my reporting, I had, you know, really recognized that Ben Harris is, was, at the time, um, really running the day-to-day operations of the school and also running a lot of interference for the school with the, you know, state legislature and and other folks um, in power. And we just really wanted to see what that looked like behind the scenes. And is Ben Harris's company still managing the school? No, the school has gone through quite, um, uh, you know, a turnover since then. They have a whole new board, all new board members, a new board chair. They have divorced themselves from the management company and that they are no longer being managed by a company. And Ben Harris and his partner, David Cheney, are out. And uh, have you gone through all 14,000 records yet? No, that's going to take some time. All right. Well, thanks, Jennifer. You can read uh, Jennifer's work about Epic Charter Schools and other education topics, as well as Paul Money's story about the lawsuit and its settlement in this public records case. That's all available at OklahomaWatch.org. I'm talking to Keaton Ross, who covers criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch. Last week, Keaton broke a story about a new Oklahoma City Police Department policy that restricts when officers may engage in a vehicle pursuit. Keaton, uh, why is the department changing its policy now? Yeah, so there has been a lot of conversation on the national level over the past several years about pursuit policies and what kind of how to balance public safety versus the uh, benefit of immediately catching the suspect. Of course, police pursuits are very risky, uh, not only for the officer, but for the bystanders, uh, the public that's that's around. Um, we saw a case last May, in May 2021, 20, where a 28-year-old woman was in Oklahoma City was killed after a suspect fleeing the police uh, hit her car. Um, so certainly a, a balance, there's a balance they're trying to strike there. So what are the new restrictions included in this policy? So there are there are several new restrictions. Um, one is in a code three call, which is, you know, your general emergency call that an officer is responding to. There's now speed restrictions. So on a side street, the limit is 50, you, an officer can't go more than 15 miles over the speed limit. On a highway, they can't go more than 25 miles over the speed limit. And then there are also uh, restrictions when, based on the the crime that the suspect is accused of, whether um, there are more restrictions on property crimes than there are on persons' crimes that are more likely to be a violent offense. So, for example, if some if an officer is chasing a burglary suspect and they go through a school zone, uh, the officer is required to end that pursuit unless there's you know a major exception. Are there any uh, exemptions to those those restrictions? 
Yeah, so the the policy states that an exemption would there would only be an exemption unless the officer's life is in danger or they're in significant distress. So that's kind of a baseline on when it would be appropriate to to break that new policy. Well, if an officer uh, does break the policy, what kind of discipline would they face? So the the policy doesn't uh, spell out specifically, uh, you know, discipline or, you know, uh, punishment if they break the policy. But it, it does state that a supervisor will be required to review uh, the pursuit and the, the circumstances around it. And, uh, of course, if they break the policy or there wasn't good justification, that will be reviewed. Was there any kind of public discussion around the policy change or was it strictly an internal thing? This was strictly an internal thing. It came through a chief's directive and they released the policy last Tuesday. And it wasn't until after we and a few other news outlets asked about it that they they released that new policy. Has anybody spoken out against that policy? Not not publicly. Um, I reached out, for example, to the uh, the Fraternal Order of Police when I was writing the story, and I, I didn't hear anything back. Uh, myself and, and my colleague Whitney Bryan have heard from um, a few uh, retired officers or current officers uh, who don't necessarily want their name out there but have expressed some concern that this will uh, maybe embolden people to run from the police and, and – uh, effectively ban most chases is, is what they're telling us as, as their concerns. How often does the Oklahoma City Police Department pursue suspects? So in 2020, uh, this is information that the, the Oklahoman collected. There were 382 police chases uh, in the Oklahoma City Police Department, so averaging out to about a little over one per day, so uh, relatively fre- frequent. All right. Is there any data on how often civilians are killed in those police pursuits? There's no kind of aggregate data where you can look at these were how many people were killed in Oklahoma last year or two years ago. Um, But USA Today did an analysis in 2015 looking at 1979 to 2015, and they found that over that time period, 5,000 sort of bystanders or motorists that aren't involved weren't involved in the chase were killed um so certainly it it you know it it's, can be very dangerous to people who have nothing to do with the chase all right well thanks keaton you can read keaton's story about the new pursuit policy with the oklahoma city police department along with all his other criminal justice reporting at oklahomawatch.org you've been listening to long story short a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. Oklahoma Watch is a nonpartisan, nonprofit news organization. That means that we rely on readers and listeners like you to help fund the important work that Oklahoma Watch does throughout the state. We're in the middle of our spring fundraising campaign. If you enjoy the work we do, if you feel as though you benefit from it and the state of Oklahoma benefits from what we do, please take a moment to visit our website and make any contribution that 
that you're comfortable with, $5 a month, $10 a month, whatever's comfortable for you will help keep this important work going. Visit our donations page at oklahomawatch.org.